Welcome back to Balagan. I'm Kobe Cohen. On episode 70, we spoke to Adir Binyamini about the legislative branch, the Knesset, Israel's parliament. So how do you get elected to the Knesset? Who can vote and what is the process? For that, I have my dear friend, Mr. Guy Bengal. Guy is an Israeli educator and has been active in both the political and education fields in Israel for the past 15 years. Guy worked as a high school civic studies teacher, a civic education instructor in the Ministry of Education, and as a junior high principal. Guy has a bachelor degree and a master's degree in political science from Hebrew and Haifa universities. And Guy, I'm really happy to have you with us to speak Likewise. about this topic. Likewise, Kobe, thank you for having me. So Guy and I, we go uh, back a long time uh, from the Hebrew University, actually, just like Adir. Um, and Guy is here to enlighten us about, you know, we're having the upcoming election actually on November 1st, which is the date this episode is going to be aired. Um, so Guy, what can you tell us about the Israeli system? Well, uh, as you said, we have our fifth election coming up in the last five years, four years, since 2019. Three and a half, actually. Yeah, but who's counting, as yeah. we say. <laughs> um, so we're we're talking again, when an electoral process in Israel is very relevant. And I thought that uh, we could begin maybe by enlightening five basic differences between the electoral system in Israel and the United States. So starting from a very basic difference, um, I don't know if our listeners are aware of the fact that Israel, unlike the United States, does not have a constitution. And since electoral uh, laws have something to do with constitution, I think it's a good fact to start with. Second difference between the American system and Israeli system is that obviously Israel does not have, like the United States, a presidential system. We have a parliamentary system. Our head of state is a prime minister. We do have a president. Today it's Bougie Herzog, but his capacity is very different than the American president, the current president today. We'll talk a little bit about what is the role of the president in the Israeli system as opposed to the American system. Um, Unlike the United States, Israel only has one house of representatives, which is the Knesset, unlike the Senate and the House of Representatives of the United States. And another difference between the United States and Israel is the fact that, traditionally speaking, America has a two-party system, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, where Israel has a multi-party system, which I know you're very familiar with. Kobe, do you remember how many parties are represented today? 2022 in the Israeli Knesset? In my memory, it's 13 different parties. Correct. 13 different parties made the threshold and are represented today, which the average is always usually above 10. Eight of them formed the current government. So yeah. the, first, the current coalition. About, exactly. One of the biggest challenges is to try to form a coalition from so many parties. That's one of the biggest challenges of any multi-party system. Significantly in Israel, that is the case. And I, I would like to enlighten one last difference, even though there are more, because I said I'll mention five. The fifth one is the fact that whereas America has a lot of electoral districts, even if we talk about the presidential campaign or the state campaigns, Israel has actually only one single nationwide electoral district, which is interesting. And we might elaborate on that later. But I'd like to open it with those five highlighting differences, because obviously we have a very, very different system than the one in the United States. And I wanted to open with that. Yeah, and that is, you actually brought up great distinctions between the Israeli and the American system. 
And you were mentioning the president and our president, I mean, our Israeli president is more of a, I would say, um, um, statehood or a Republican figure. And more of a, a symbolic, even symbolic, a symbolic. Exactly. An executive. Uh, but he does have a, um, a major role after the election. But before we'll get to that, Uh, let's start with the election itself. Who can vote? Uh, who can get elected? And how do, do, how do you get elected in Israel? Let's start by who can vote before elections. Any, any Israeli citizen who is 18 years or older may vote to the legislative elections in Israel. It's very common, like most democracies, the fact that you have an Israeli citizenship and you are above that age limit will allow you to vote. I would say that Israel, unlike other countries, And by, and by the countries, the United States included, uh, prisoners in the jail can vote as well. I don't think that's the case in the United States. I know there's a lot of campaigns about uh, yeah, prisoners in America. The, I mean, right. that some people, the fact that they have a criminal record that does not allow them to vote, that is not the case in Israel. You can vote. You have ballots in jails, and they can exercise their right. That's why I mentioned it. Uh, you have people who can vote in their hospitals if they're hospitalized while election day is held. So Israel tries to make it as accessible as possible. Uh, however, what, something that differs the United States on the other perspective is that if you are an Israeli citizen living outside of the United States and you don't have an official diplomatic or official role, you are not allowed to vote. A person like you, right. Kobe, like yeah. if you're in the yeah. United States, I know you flew especially to Israel more than once in order to exercise your voting right. Uh, that's a voting right that every American overseas has. You can vote usually in an American yeah. consulate or you could vote in, over the mail. Uh, Israel does not allow its overseas citizens to vote unless they're official diplomats or unofficial uh, Israeli uh, hosts. So that's, that's a distinction that I think is worth making in terms of who is, has the right to vote. In terms of who has the right to become elected, uh, it's not that different. Uh, the only distinction is that you have to be 21 and not 18. Obviously, you have to be an Israeli citizen. Um, and unless you were sentenced by court to a certain degree, not any, any mild uh, uh, restriction, you're, you're allowed to uh, issue your submission and to try to become elected. So it's also quite lenient. Uh, you don't have any other criteria other than age and citizenship, and you have to have a pretty clean criminal record. But even if you have a minor record, you're allowed to, to run. Uh, so... Basically, it's almost anyone. It's quite. Uh, it's not that different than other democracies in that respect. Right. Just one thing about what you said about the voting. Uh, not only that you can only vote when in Israel, you can actually you actually need to reach out to a specific ballot that they give you. Um, you need to come to a specific address with a specific ballot where you are, are registered, Correct. and that's the only place where you can uh, vote when in Israel. That is very true. I mentioned before that Israel is considered a single nationwide electoral district. That means right. that technically speaking, people vote close to where they live, and that's where usually your ballot will be based. If you live in a certain city, uh, you will be usually designated to vote in a ballot that is usually in the school or kindergarten closest to where you live. Once all the votes are counted, Israel is considered a single nationwide electoral district. In fact, All the votes are counted twice, once in each ballot, and then those ballots are taken all to the Knesset, right. to Jerusalem. They are recounted as if it was only one single nation-wide single ballot. So that, that is also a bit different than what happens in the United States. 
We do not have a winner takes it all system. Uh, we have one ballot and we have a multi-party system and we'll get into details if you'd like and elaborate, but that is also a very good distinction that has to be made. And actually two more bonuses uh, that I think about. First thing in Israel, we do get a day off, okay, in order to go and vote, which is something that doesn't happen in the US. In the US, it's a regular working day. So Correct. people don't rush to make Aliyah in order to vote, okay? Because it's only once every couple of months. It's not like a... That's true. <laughs> That's true. So... It's definitely a bonus. By the way, it can have a certain effect on the turnout. Some say right. it has a positive effect because if I have a day off, I have no excuse. I have to go vote. You have people who say that sometimes it has a, uh, a negative effect because people use that day off. They go to the beach or they go take a trip and then they forget they have to vote. So right. we'll talk right. about turnout... Percentages, it's on it, it, the percentage was used to be higher, now it's a bit lower. We can go into the numbers if you'd like to. But the fact that there is a day off should usually have a positive effect on the turnout. So we spoke about the election themselves. It all happens in one day. Um, and you were talking about the threshold. And I mm -hmm. did mention it a couple of times in the past, but let's talk about the threshold and you know what's the meaning of it. Uh, when it comes to voting in Israel. Okay, so let, let's give you a brief background, even if it was talked in previous podcasts. Uh, the electoral threshold was previously set at 1%, which is was considered one of the lowest in, in, in democracies in the world. That threshold was since Israel was founded in 1948 and existed until 1992. Since 1992, the threshold has gradually been risen to 1.5% and then to 2%. In 2014, until it's affected its uh, current level, which is 3.25%, which was passed in the elections of, for the 20th Knesset. That's relatively 2015, recent. I think. Exactly. It is relatively recent. Now, you, one could ask why specifically a threshold of 3.25%, <laughs> uh, because it's obviously not a random number. And the reason is because traditionally, until that threshold, which was before 3.25% was 2%, you could find parties in the Israeli parliament, which consists of 120 Knesset members, 120 parliament parliamentarians, you could find parties which were as small as only two or three seats parties, mandates. Uh, the reason that this specific percentage was, was held is because they thought it was large enough to have medium and large parties, yet it could eliminate the fact that very microscopic and small parties might not make the threshold. And to a certain extent, it reached its, its destination, meaning you will not be able to find parties smaller than five mandate seats uh, in the Knesset today because the threshold is, that exists does not allow it. Uh, but still, as you can see, with a threshold of 3.25%, we still have 13 parties represented in the current Knesset. So um, one could say that it's still a very much multi-multi-party system. And there are talks that they might even rise it even more to 5%. But at the moment, it doesn't seem like the threshold is going to be changed. And it's been the same for the past seven years. Let's say that 5% works for Germany, which has, I think, three or four parties only in the parliament. No, uh, yes. But... Another point that I want to share in that, in that you know, um, that I want to put here is that actually in 2015, the main reason that they wanted to rise the threshold 
was actually because Avigdor Lieberman, who now sits in what's called the change block, was mm-hmm. very much aligned with the right wing, and he was actually trying to eliminate the Arab parties, but that actually created a different uh, result for, for the right wing in Israel, because the, all of the Arab parties united, um, united and ran as, as one, uh, as one uh, uh, slate, under one slate, Mm-hmm. And they got 15 seats at that, uh, in, that, in that election term, which was uh, a peak. That is very the... true, Kobe. Meaning uh, the, original, uh, the, the original motivation of lifting the threshold was in order to try to maybe eliminate one or two of the Arab parties that were always very close to that percentage. And the fact of the matter is that the, the opposite result was obtained because it actually motivated the Arab parties, which are just as Jewish parties are not necessarily identical and they represent different aspects and different interests, the same is the case with the Arab parties. But the fact that they had to choose between either being eliminated or unified, they contained a bloc that uh, pretty much managed to keep itself until uh, the election before last, where we saw that there was a split and that split actually is even uh, became even stronger this time. If you want, we can talk about the Arab vote. But the whole threshold issue has a lot to do with how you can find the optimal uh, uh, percent of having representation to, right. to the maximum, but also obtaining a viable government that can be formed without having too many parties and having the object of forming a coalition from in a multi-party system as almost an impossible mission, which is also very challenging today in today's government and the past election. You know, it's interesting because you mentioned it. Uh, when Israel was established, uh, the threshold was just 1%. Correct. And it didn't create any, what you call, governing problem or a governing issue. I think that the main change was in 1996, when Israel changed the uh, election system to vote in two ballots for a prime minister and to the Knesset. But without changing the system itself, um, and then it split the voting because people could vote for the prime minister, which was from one party, but then to vote to a different party. And eventually the system, I mean, the Israeli system never recovered from it. I think your distinction is correct. Let's try to clarify it for our listeners a little bit, okay? You have to take under consideration also that the turnout until the mid-90s was relatively high, meaning... Uh, since Israel was founded, up to the mid-90s, the turnout was roughly above 80%. 80%, okay. yeah. Uh, one of the highest in the, the was West considered world. Correct. was considered one of the highest in the democratic world. Again, when you consider the fact that voting is not obligatory, you have countries where you have to vote, like Australia. Uh, the fact China, that Israel China. never... Yeah, China is not, China is not <laughs> a democracy. China, you can get in trouble for voting for the wrong person, no, too. But, but I'm saying, Russia, and, uh, Russia and, the, and the Syria are democracies. And the, yes, yeah, of course. <laughs> with we, 90%. We know, of, we know what type of democracy. Well, what I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to make is, considering the fact that the voting is not obligatory, having until the mid-90s a turnout of a, up to 80% was considered high. And then what affected it dramatically is what you mentioned, the fact that in 1996, uh, electoral laws were changed. And uh, unlike what is t- the case today, because we went back to the old system, where you voted until the 90s only with one ballot, you could vote only for a party. Uh, 
Uh, Israelis were given an extra ballot and they could vote directly for a candidate, which reminds a little bit the presidential system in the United States. Uh, and it was tried three times in 1996 and 1999 and 2001. And the reason it was changed again is because the effect was horrendous in terms of the power the parties received. Meaning in, until then, uh, you had major parties. No party, this, by the way, get, puts us into the topic of the coalition system and how to form a government in Israel. Since the Knesset has 120 members, in order to form a government, you need at least more than 50%, meaning you have to form a government that has at least 61 members. Uh, we just mentioned that the last Knesset had 13 parties. So obviously no party was strong enough to form a coalition on its own. That was never the case. But there were years where the two largest parties, which were obviously fighting each other, one representing the right wing, one representing the left wing, what was the Likud and Labor. Likud and Labor of today, uh, they and their highest peak were close to 40, maybe 50 seats out of 120. Still no, not strong actually, enough. actually, almost 80. When you think about the unity government in no, 1985. Together, together, I'm saying one party on its own. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. As together a standalone. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. As a standalone, no party in Israel was ever strong enough to form a government on its own without right. at least one more or party. So having that the case, when in the 90s, the system was changed and the power of the larger parties was even diminished, what happened is you could directly vote for a candidate, but his party uh, was was considered very, very weak. Uh, like you could see what happened to the Labour Party in 1999 when Ehud Barak won Netanyahu on the personal ticket, but the Labour Party diminished and became much, much weaker. They so, got 24 seats at that time, and it was, a, it was a slate that combined actually... You're right, Labour with David Levy. It was, Levy. More, it it was, was even more than one platform. Yeah. Now, today, when we say 24 seats for the Labour Party, that sounds like, whoa, that's a lot, because yeah. today's Labour Party is actually fighting to even maybe get more than a threshold. the threshold. But, but right. we're, talking right. about, we're talking about the governing uh, party of this country, and the fact that turnout numbers also became lower since the mid-90s. We're talking about numbers going under 70, under, excuse me, under 80%. Uh, when we reached uh, 1999, it was 78%. 2003 is a big plummet. That's when we, for the first time, the turnout was less than 70%, roughly 68, 67%. And yeah. since then, the turnout hasn't gone much higher, meaning the average is between high 60s and low 70s, meaning in 2020, it was 71%. And the last election, it was 67.5%, meaning we've never gotten back to the turnout numbers of, uh, of the 1990s and the early days of the country. And there are different reasons why that is the case. People are also more tired. This is not something that is a phenomenon that is, uh, you know, singular to Israel. But um, no. it's not a good thing for democracy when turnout numbers go down. And obviously, as, as people who believe in democracy, we would like to have higher numbers. And uh, again, when in Israel in the last four years, an election is periodically every year instead of every four years, that usually doesn't help to, to bring the turnout higher. But that, that has a lot to do with also forming the government. If you want, we can go more into that. But that was like the explanation regarding how turnout and threshold affects the system in Israel. I definitely want to go to participation. 
But I want to I wanna touch it as the last thing, you know, uh, that we'll talk about okay. Israel society. Okay. So we had the election, okay? Mm -hmm. Comes election day, election day ends. What happens then? Okay, so according to Israeli uh, electoral laws, after the election, the president, again, not the American president, the Israeli president, who is, as we said, he's more of a symbolic figure, but one of his, uh, I would say, more substantive roles is the fact that the president meets after the elections in Israel with the leaders of every party that won the Knesset seat and asks them to recommend which party leader should form the government. So he, he actually physically meets the chairmen and the leaders of each parties that uh, managed to get enough votes above the threshold. And they have to give him their official representation as to who they think should form the government. Uh, the president then nominates the party leader who is most likely to command uh, the support of the majority of the Knesset. It's not necessarily the leader, by the way, of the largest party. Traditionally speaking, that was the case. But again, the objective here is not necessarily to be the largest party, but to obtain what? To obtain the majority of at least 61 seats, right. more than 50% of the Knesset members. So what, what, what usually happens is the president has some kind of latitude deciding who he believes has the best chance of forming a government based on those recommendations. And that's, that's what happened uh, until now. Obviously, when election numbers are closer and when the right wing and the left wing are closer to each other, uh, the game of mathematics and adding the numbers becomes a little more close. And uh, when you have a government that's based only on 61 uh, Knesset members, which is the actual minimal number required, things can become a bit more close to call, to predict, and uh, also to maintain a viable government. So the president gives the mandate to the candidate he believes that has the power to form a coalition. He has 42 days and, to put together a viable coalition, meaning he has, he gives, he has a timetable of 42 days. Uh, extensions can be granted in certain cases, but usually uh, the person who gets the first shot has 42 days to put together a viable government. If he succeeds, then we all say, hurrah, hurrah, we have a new government. If he fails, then he might give uh, the second person who has the best chance of forming a government and, and then uh, will win the vote of confidence of the Knesset before taking office. Now, that was the case the last time. And in our last elections, which were brief, uh, roughly a year ago, Benjamin Netanyahu was the one who uh, officially got more recommendations uh, from party leaders, from the 13 parties represented in today's Knesset. However, uh, uh, he did not uh, achieve the goal of uh, forming a government and uh, he could not um, make the 42-day window and Yair Lapid, which was the second candidate who got the most recommendations from the party leaders, uh, got the same task from the president and he uh, quite surprisingly managed to form a coalition of eight different parties, very different from each other, Arab parties on one side or relatively right-wing parties on the other, uh, central parties, Lapid himself is a left, leftist centrist party leader, and uh, the reason this government was existing only for one year is because it was a very, very tight coalition, uh, tightly numbered and marginalized, but again, the president uh, exercised his right to give Netanyahu the first chance, he failed, and Lapid was the one who succeeded doing so, and all eyes are in for two weeks from now for our next fifth election.
to see who's going to be able to form a government and for how long. And an important thing about what you said, the 42 days are actually split to two terms. First, he gets uh, 28 days, if I remember correctly. Correct. And then if he doesn't succeed, but he wants to get granted an extra period of time, he comes to the president. The president can tell him, okay, I'll give you the extra 14 days, right? And, and he but gets he an can extension. Also get, exactly. A little bit like when we, when we deliver a paper a little late to our professor in uh, yeah. the university, <laughs> we get an extension. So yeah, there is an extension possibility. So it's not, it's which, not which, by the way, is, which, which, which in the name of the lawmaker is quite, quite smart because the lawmaker took under consideration that the process of forming a government could be complicated and the, the interests of different parties can be something that could be hard to simulate and to, to try to combine all the interests together. So I think that was a smart move on behalf of the legislator. I thought, but again, there, but there, there is a time limit and whoever manages to form forms and whoever doesn't someone else gets a chance to do so. I think when they, uh, you know, when they uh, created, wrote this law, they didn't think it's going to be this hectic, you know, <laughs> 75 no. years, 75 years later. <laughs> I can tell you that it's an interesting point you're making because now don't forget that our Knesset member number is an even number. It's 120, which means that theoretically speaking, you could have a tie of 60 to 60. Right. which is something that you want to avoid. This is the reason why certain parliaments have an uneven number of members in, in order to exactly avoid it. I know that like in the Senate, if there's a tie of uh, 50 senators uh, versus other 50 senators, the person who splits right. the vote right. is the vice president. Acting right, as who a, has, a, as a, a has an vote. acting vote. Right. So we don't, we don't, unfortunately, don't have something that can help us with that uh, scenario. And since the elections are very close and very tight in the last few elections, um, either the Israeli voter will be able to give a bit more power to one of the sides, or we might find ourselves in a sixth election in less than a year's time from now. I hope not. So I want to ask you uh, the last topic of, our con of this conversation between us, because we're going to have another episode talking about, you know, uh, Israeli democracy. I want to talk about the people. I mean, eventually, I think that what the most important part of uh, of uh, democratic elections is participation, and participation will eventually uh, determine who's going to be the next prime minister in Israel. So let's talk about this participation. We spoke about a little bit about the Arab parties mm -hmm. uh, concerning the 2015 election. Um, what do you think is going to happen now? I mean, who's participating, who's not, okay. uh, and why? We talked in general terms about the turnout, the national turnout, how many voters in general uh, exercise their vote in Israel. We, we, right. we're, now, we're now going to try to talk about how those votes are split between different communities living in Israel. So let's talk about first the two basic communities, which we all know, the Arabs and the Jews. Uh, traditionally speaking, we're talking about a split of about 80% Jews living in Israel and about 20% Arab Israelis who have voting rights and are full citizens. Uh, let's not mix them with the Palestinian Arabs living in the uh, West in, Bank and Gaza. The West Bank right. and the Gaza Strip. I'm, I'm making that illustration specifically for our listeners. We're talking about 20% of Arab Israelis, which are Israeli citizens and have voting rights, obviously. Uh, in my book, unfortunately, uh, the turnout of Jewish voters is higher, generally speaking, than Arab voters. 
the turnout of Arab voters traditionally is in the last elections is roughly between 40 to 50 percent. That means that practically every other Arab voter, every second Arab voter doesn't exercise his voting rights. And the question obviously is why? Why do Jews traditionally vote in higher numbers than Arabs? The first answer is, uh, is that Arabs officially were part of the voting system, but they were never really an official and full legitimate part of Israeli government. Meaning, uh, even though Israel is a democracy, even though they could vote, even though they were Arab members, they were never actually uh, officially part of the coalition government. Uh, you had Arab Israelis who were represented in Zionist parties, like the Labour Party right. or Meretz Party. Some of them are acting ministers in today's government. Okay, you have in Meretz an Arab minister, Isawi Frage, and and this is not the first time, but. Uh, there is a precedent that this specific government is the first government that officially uh, had an Arab-Israeli party join the coalition, not as part of the government, meaning Mahmoud Abbas as chairman of, of the party, of Ram party, uh, did not become a minister in the government, but he did sign a coalition agreement right. with the official. Now, that is a shift. Now, the hope of people like me was that once an Arab-Israeli party is part of officially the government, this would motivate the Arabs to vote in higher numbers. That is not the case so far. And the reason is maybe because it's only been a year and they haven't seen the change uh, affect their lives yet, meaning the fact that their representatives uh, tried to have them get more allocations of money and budgets and so on, but they haven't felt it yet in their day-to-day -day life. So they haven't felt motivated to vote in higher numbers. Then there are Arabs, which I converse with, and they say, listen, it's a rigged game anyway. You're, you're the Jews. You're running the country. Even if we'll, be a, uh, we'll get a minor part of forming a government or be, get even certain ministerial posts, we will never be the ones who call the shots in the country. So uh, there, there's no choice for us to do it anyway because it's a rigged game and we, we're not going to be really the main actors playing in it. Uh, and of course, there's also despair and apathy, which some, it's something that also is characterizing the Jewish voters. Because again, not every eligible voter in Israel who's Jewish also exercises a vote. So there are a lot of reasons for the differences between Arabs and Israelis in terms of voting. Now, if you if you try to analyze the different sectors within the Jewish voters, you can see that the the ultra orthodox, uh, what we call as a Haredim in Israel which are represented mainly by two parties, Yaduta Torah and Shas, one more yeah. Sephardic United, Jews. United Torah Judaism in English, exactly. UTJ. One of, them is more, <laughs> one of them is more associated with Ashkenazi uh, Orthodox right. and one of more Sephardic Orthodox. Uh, they, they are considered uh, uh, exemplary uh, voters. They turn out in quite high numbers, the highest in the Jewish uh, sectors. I think uh, that UTJ again, a lot more because they are also easier to distinct. Correct. I mean, some correct. of the Shas supporters are not exactly ultra-Orthodox. Correct. And I also, let's not forget that people who used to maybe traditionally in the past vote for, for uh, uh, Orthodox Jewish parties, some of them vote for other parties today. For right. Likud. They, they are tended to be more right-wing. And the reason we know that is because demographically speaking, they have grown in the last 20, 30, 40 years. But politically speaking, they haven't grown in the same proportion. And the reason that it can be explained is not that they don't come to vote. Some of them actually don't vote. But the ones who vote don't necessarily vote for those specific parties. 
but when they do vote, they usually vote in high numbers, higher than other Jewish sects. In terms of, of the others, uh, you have the religious parties as well, which are usually considered more motivated to vote. And I would say, roughly speaking, that the more the party is secular in Israel, I'm talking about Jewish parties, usually you'll see a lower level of a turnout. Uh, but other things can affect the, the potential of you voting. It can have a lot to do with where you live, your occupation, your social demographic uh, scale. Uh, there are a lot of factors that can predict uh, your ability to act, exercise your right, your right to vote. But I can say in general, the turnout is going down, the general turnout. Uh, there is a gap between Jews and Arabs. Roughly speaking, Jews vote in higher numbers than Arabs. And uh, there are differences between different groups of, uh, of Jewish uh, groups within the Jewish sector as well. I would say also that, for example, in the big cities, you'll have a higher turnout than the periphery, for example. Correct. And as you mentioned, it may be connected to uh, social economic status, educational status, uh, and other factors that come, uh, come into the equation. Correct. But again, if we would traditionally say that uh, usually in other countries, the lower your social economic status is, the less likely you are to vote, that is not necessarily the case in Israel. There are a lot of other factors that can be intervening factors that can affect uh, what will make you vote uh, the next day. Obviously, the existing government has a lot of effects on uh, the motivation of a certain person to go, uh, the political house where the individual grow up. Right has an effect as well. Uh, it, these are things that are, are becoming harder to predict. And as you know, I think Shimon Peres was, was the ex-former president and prime minister of Israel once was known for the, saying that uh, polls are a bit like perfume. They, yeah. they smell good. They, they might smell good, but they can evaporate very, very easily. And I think the reason he said that is because in many cases, he was uh, the predicting winner when we woke up in the morning and we actually he was the candidate that lost at the end because yeah, the polls yeah. predicted him wrong. So seeing that the cases that the, the electoral process in Israel in the last campaigns is also very close between the right wing and the, and the left wing, polls are, are as good as what maybe they predicted the same day and the next day the result can be, can be completely different. And it's also, I mean, it's, it's funny, you know, in many ways you can say that in Israel it should be a lot easier to count the votes, but unlike the states where it's actually semi-electronic, you know, the ballots uh -huh. are just being scanned uh -huh. and that's it. I mean, uh, and you have the numbers in real time. In Israel, it takes almost a week, if I remember correctly, to get the uh, final no, voting. No. It takes it takes usually between to get the actual votes. We have the system also that our soldiers vote in different ballots, and they're usually counted a day later. But not a week, but it takes definitely much longer than what it takes to get actual voting uh, official results in the United States. And, and it's interesting because we talk about Israel always as a high tech nation, and we know that we are very technologically orientated. In terms of our voting counting process, we are working uh, very much in the 20th century, uh, maybe even the 19th century, meaning people, <laughs> people still use very, very traditional ballots and paper, put them in the ballot. These are counted manually. And again, all of them given shifted back to the main recounting in Jerusalem. Uh, I can say, uh, Kobe, and this is not to be you know, in any way a protector of this old system, and even when you have technological uh, systems, 
We know that these could be more affected by other dangers like hacking. And, oh, definitely. Uh, and they, they, you, you, so maybe, you know, sticking to the old system also has its advantages and not just the disadvantage of maybe having the actual voting uh, right. results a bit later than others. And we know that this is a factor, maybe not in the electoral process itself. We know about a lot of uh, influence that is done in today's democracies by uh, propaganda and networks and uh, fake news and whatever. I mean, the news is full of, of all kind of commentary uh, uh, journalism about this issue. Um, I think that I'm willing to pay the price of waiting uh, in patience to get my results a bit later. As far as I know, that nobody tampered with the results and, uh, and nobody tried to rig the election. Yeah, I can definitely agree with you on that. I want to ask you one last question uh, before we end this episode. What do you expect the results to be? Do you think that uh, there's going to be another tie? The deadlock is going to remain? Or, uh, you know, one side is going to get an upper hand here in so this the, round? That's the one million shekel question, right, Kobe? Only one million know. shekel? Come on. <laughs> shekel, I'm trying not to be greedy. I, I didn't say dollars on purpose. Look, <laughs> I just mentioned before that, that predictions of polls are as good as, as the day they predict. So I, I'm, I will say, and my own personal prediction is that it, that it is going to be a very close election, a bit too close to call. And um, I think the only thing that might sway the result in the way of the left-wing parties is that if the turnout of the Arab uh, voters would be a bit higher, meaning if it will remain within the numbers that it's the prediction of today, meaning 40 to 45%, I predict that uh, Netanyahu has a bigger chance of becoming uh, the next prime minister. However, if Arab uh, voters will come in bigger numbers, I believe that this way can go the other way. And personally, that's also my, my uh, not just my conviction, but I would like that to happen as well, meaning I, I prefer this reform government to have another chance. I think the fact that they were only one year didn't give them enough uh, time to prove their agenda to the citizens. And I think I think you have also right-wing people that believe that there is time for change, including people who supported for Netanyahu in the past. Uh, even if they're Likud supporters and they might vote Likud again, they, they if you ask them and, and have an eye-to-eye, tete-a-tete uh, conversation with them, they, they'll admit that they think there's time for change. And on the other hand, you have some supporters of Netanyahu that think that it's it's not uh, that it wasn't enough. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to remind you that uh, President Trump, former President Trump, uh, toyed with the idea of maybe uh, playing with the American Constitution, uh, uh, trying yeah. to avoid yeah. a two-term president. So, so uh, uh, the thoughts of having a government that first and foremost is not. Indefinite. I think that's one of the basic forms of any democracy. And Netanyahu was in office for almost 12 years, uh, the highest, yeah. uh, a, a, a highest uh, number of uh, years. Consecutive years, by the way, because in overall it was 15 years. Yes, and uh, more than Ben Gurion, the founding yeah. father of Israel, the prime minister who served as the, the, the highest number of years in office. Uh, so one can say good or bad. He, he's done his time, and uh, I think the time. I think Lapid. Now we're, you know, we're, we're not talking about election process. We're talking about political commentary. But I think Lapid uh, proved that he can be a viable alternative. I think uh, the fact that Yeshatid, his party, is rising is not coincidental. Uh, everything shows that his party is going to get the highest numbers it's gotten 
since it uh, got into politics roughly about 10 years ago, the numbers now are about 25 seats. The gap between Yeshatid and Likud is, is closing. Uh, there are other elements. You have the extreme right wing becoming much stronger. You have people like Itamar Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir. Ben-Gvir. The hard right of Israel is becoming stronger as well. Uh, something that in my eye is very alarming is that you have younger people openly saying that they would vote for those parties, which are, in my case, in my book, uh, semi-fascist parties. Uh, so that is also very troubling. And time will tell which faction will run the government in about uh, two, three weeks from today. Yeah, that's going to be a topic for our next conversation, because I want to hear your thoughts as an educator on how can it be that the younger generation, you know, is aligning a lot more with the hard right wing in Israel, uh, with the nationalistic, I, mm-hmm. I would say, stream. But mm-hmm. that's for a different conversation. <laughs> okay, I agree. Yeah, we should, we should give that uh, interesting question uh, the time of its own. Definitely. So, Guy, I really want to thank you for your time and for being with us and sharing, uh, you know, all of your knowledge here. Gladly. Um, it was a pleasure hosting you. And let's see what's going to happen the, in the upcoming election. I really hope that uh, the deadlock will be broken, but it's hard to tell. So Let's, let's remain cautiously optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Kobe. Will do. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now, and have a great day.